Hello, and welcome to the first episode of The Two View. I'm Martha Roberts, and I am an emergency nurse practitioner. I'm sitting here virtually, of course, with my co-host and faculty partner, Michael Sharma, PA. This podcast has been three years in the making, and we're really excited to tell you about what we're doing. And we plan to share a lot of great emergency and urgent care material with you over the next 30 minutes or so. But first, I want to introduce Mike. Mike, how you doing? Great, Martha. I'm thrilled to be here. I've just been sitting here for the past three years, waiting to hit record, so this is fantastic. I'm glad that you stuck with it. So let me tell you a little bit about Mike first. Mike started his PA career with the U.S. Army, and his service included a deployment to Afghanistan, where he treated combat-wounded civilians and service members. And since leaving the military, he's been a full-time emergency medicine PA in Dallas, Texas area. He's also a really passionate educator, and he teaches... EM and PA board review around the country. And even this past year, didn't you go to Canada? You were there teaching? Again, it was virtually. You know, I didn't I didn't fly all the way to the frozen north, but uh, from the comfort of my uh, warm fifth bedroom, I did uh, do a little uh, EKG talk for the Canadian PA conference, and it was a real honor. Awesome. And Mike and I see each other a couple times a year when we go to Las Vegas to do our emergency medicine boot camps with some wonderful faculty for the Center for Medical Education. And we're going to tell you more about that at the end of the podcast. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, I'm going to uh, introduce you before we go too far ahead, Martha. Okay, so Martha here is a triple certified adult and pediatric acute care and primary care nurse practitioner. She is the host of the emergency medicine boot camps for the Center for CME in Las Vegas. Um, these are the courses that you've probably heard of, designed, brought to you by some of the leading emergency medicine educators in the field. Uh, you've got NPs, you've got PAs, of course, you've got physicians, including the co-directors, Dr. Rick Bucata and Dr. Diane Birnbaumer. Uh, Martha is most recently hailing from UC Davis Medical Center in Sacramento, California, where she worked in the ER there. She's currently pitching in for the fight here against COVID-19, doing some COVID relief work in the Sacramento area where she just shared with me a startling statistic that maybe we'll get to later on regarding just the, the amount of death here in Sacramento and just all over the place. Everyone's hurting and Martha's helping out, which is fantastic here. She has been all over so many publications and journals, podcasts, hosting uh, EM News Live podcast with one of our fellow instructors, uh, Rick Pescator for Emergency Medicine News and writing for many texts, including... The Granddaddy, Roberts and Hedges, procedural textbook for the emergency medicine field. But her most notable, and I think her most passionate and personal work, is her procedural column called The Procedural Pause. Yes. Thanks, Mike. Awesome introduction. You know, emergency medicine, I'm super passionate about it, and I love working with people like you because you are also passionate. And going through the literature and talking to listeners about anything in the EM world is exciting. Everything's changing. There's a lot going on, not just with COVID, but with everything that we're doing. And we're going to drop some really great information for you in the podcast today. Well, so, Mike, what's this show going to be about today? Yeah, you know, uh, it, there's so few podcasts out there, right, Martha? I mean, like, no one's doing a podcast right now. So why the heck should we do a podcast? Well, you know, we get feedback at our CME courses and on Facebook to like, hey, why don't you guys, why doesn't CME, the Center for Medical Education, do a podcast for PAs and NPs together? Because there are like PA podcasts and there are NP podcasts, but why don't we do a PA and NP podcast, two views on the same subject, hence the name, so we can kind of discuss things together, hot topics in emergency medicine, how maybe they affect PAs and NPs in a different way than they might affect physicians. Yeah, and like, we also want to try to be as innovative as we can. You know, our departments, they're all constantly changing. I know that a lot of hospitals, their fast tracks have turned into ICUs, you know, for the COVID patients. Um, there are all kinds of different ways to get information online and through podcasts. But this one's going to be a little bit different because we're going to talk about cutting edge, leading news stuff in EM. But we're also going to cover some heavy topics, some things like maybe credentialing, um, maybe some more of the politics of EM, and of course, give you some insight into some of our upcoming courses and conferences. So we want you to engage. And I also want to make sure that everybody who's listening has our email address. So if you have any comments or feedback, again, we'll put a lot of stuff in the liner notes. But if you want to contact us, our email is the number two viewcast at gmail.com. 
So again, viewcast at gmail.com. And again, check the liner notes for that. But first things first, I'm going to let Mike roll out with the new gonorrhea guidelines. And a lot of people are talking about this right now, so we're making it numero uno today. Yeah, I mean, there's so much going on in the world of infectious disease in one particular area, like viral uh, respiratory illnesses here. Uh, But this kind of made some headlines late last year while everyone was doing their Christmas shopping and such here. It's really something that APPs, PAs, and NPs are dealing with all the time. You know, we see somebody checking in for an STD check or for having dysuria, a young gentleman having dysuria. Well, there's not many things that cause that in young gentlemen. We're already thinking towards gonorrhea and chlamydia. We're going to be pulling from the Centers for Disease Control's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. This is from December 18th, like I said, kind of Christmas time of last year, 2020, by St. Cyr et al. Several authors on this one. And here's the bottom line. If you remember nothing else from this, you're going to have to go up in your treatments for gonorrhea. Okay. It used to be that everyone got a 250 milligram intramuscular injection to treat gonorrhea. And if you weren't sure if there was a co-infection, of course, you give a gram for the clam, right? One gram is a thermiocin <laughs> for chlamydia. And you do both of those things so often. That's like every shift. I'm not done until I give that to somebody I feel like mm-hmm. on a shift. Well, now the new treatment is this. Your first line treatment for gonorrhea is 500 milligrams IM for people under 150 kilograms. If the person is over 150 kilograms, we're talking about a one gram intramuscular dose of ceftriaxone. So an increased kind of baseline dose and further doubling in dose for our, uh, you know, higher BMI patients. Now, when, as is often the case in emergency medicine, when chlamydia infection has not been excluded, we're not giving azithromycin anymore unless it's a pregnant patient. We're now giving doxycycline. Doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice a day for seven days. And so let's kind of hit a couple of things there. I mean, I, I've been doing this now for about 10 years. And in just the 10 years of me being a PA, I've seen the dose to take care of gonorrhea go from 125 milligrams to 250, and now 500 milligrams IM. So we are seeing these rapid increase in uh, dosing requirements due to resistance. Martha, do you uh, you remember back in the day, it was 125 milligrams? I absolutely remember. Uh, You know, I started off as a nurse and I was giving these shots. But, you know, one thing I want to bring up before we forget, this is not an intravenous dose. And there is not a, a great amount of literature showing the difference between the IV and the IM dose of the uh, ceftriaxone. However, in this case, you know, you and I had talked about this earlier. If a patient already has an IV, it's like, oh man, do I have to give them another stick? Well, yeah, you got to give them the IM dose for the way that the drug works, right? So that's something that you do need to keep in mind. And I would try to have a gentle conversation with your patient about it. You know, nobody wants more needles, but this is what you're doing. But the other thing I kind of question here is doxycycline is not an easy drug to take. I've had to take it. It's it's kind of painful to take sometimes, right? It's stuck in your throat, um, makes you feel like just nauseous all day long. There's some other side effects and it's not well tolerated. So what can we tell our patients sort of what they have to take that doxy? That's my biggest worry. You know, I have a very intimate experience with this because in Afghanistan, you say intimate. Okay. Just keep going. I know this is like a gonorrhea and chlamydia, so it's like maybe it's like maybe a, should a, the avoid wrong that word, word intimate to use for a gonorrhea and chlamydia segment here. But I guess a very familiar experience with doxycycline because in Afghanistan, we took this thing every day to prevent malaria. I mean, we were supposed to, right? And so what I get, what did I get back from my patients overseas with doxycycline? Doc, it's tearing up my stomach. I can't take it. I've got lots of abdominal pain, a lot of diarrhea here. Um, and some people would even report weird like dreams. That's mm-hmm. more anecdotal. I actually looked for that. Are there doxy dreams out there? Not so much, you know, mefloquine, that weekly one used to seem to cause more psych and uh, dream time stuff here. So no evidence by about doxy dreams, but yeah, a lots of GI stuff. So what are some tips we can give to our patients here? Because this is, this is going to be a new thing and we're going to have to worry about, you know, chlamydia not being adequately treated because people are going to take doxy once, twice, and not make it to three times a lady because they are just so upset with their stomach and GI symptoms. So what do we tell them to do? Hey, well, look, don't be one of those folks that takes a pill on just a little sip of water here. Drink 
plenty of water, a full eight ounce glass of water with your doxycycline tablet, and then stay upright. Stay upright for 30, 60 minutes afterwards because what's going to happen otherwise is it's going to kind of hang out and maybe reflux back into your esophagus, and that's not going to be great. Yeah. Taking it with food, a good idea, maybe, because what then we're concerned about is there going to be decreased absorption because you're combining it with some, you know, a cheeseburger and your doxycycline. But look, I'd rather have a compliant patient who is taking it twice a day for seven days than someone who has like, oh, max absorption, but just for three doses because they couldn't hack it. Yeah. And the last thing we had to really be concerned about in Afghanistan especially is wear sunscreen. Mm-hmm. Like that famous graduation speech recently. Here's wear sunscreen. I guess that wasn't very recent. That was probably oh, you're, a decade ago. You're dating probably. yourself. But that's all right. That, I know. That's a good song. But Yeah, it's a good song, right? So wear sunscreen because it can cause you to be photosensitive. So especially in your summer months and people out there in the southern half of the U.S. here, put on some sunscreen uh, after taking or during your doxy. Yeah, you know, another thing about the general discharge information that we give patients. If you don't already have a system that gives you your pre-populated discharge paperwork, create some smart phrases that either you keep in a Word document or if you're using something like Epic, we call them dot phrases. Come up with something standard, something good. You know, to be honest with you, we talk about this at all the courses. I give all my patients my email. You know, I have like a dot phrase, discharge, uh, gonorrhea, dot phrase, discharge abdominal pain. It sort of gives these things that I say to patients every single time. And I don't have to spend an extra 10 minutes typing it out. It's definitely worth the time for you to sit down, copy and paste some things that you could use. There's also a really good one that I like to use for chronic pain. And then you can transition um, a lot of these statements into your uh, daily charts too, you know. So, you know, if you're doing a a physical exam or something, you can put in a dot phrase um, and do some kind of easy work for yourself. Uh, But, you know, transitioning just a little bit on, I just want to, again, hit home on the points. We're given 500 milligrams of ceftriaxone for gonorrhea, IM. Uh, You're given the doxy for seven days, 100 milligrams. And the last question is, do all these patients get a pelvic exam? And I bring that up because our next topic that we're going to talk about is recurrent UTI, and there is there is just some interesting information there that we're going to discuss. But are all these patients that are getting treated for STDs that are female getting a pelvic exam? You know, I know it's controversial, and, and I could be maybe accused of, um, you know, being a little bit, not, not providing, you know, full-spectrum OBGYN care uh, in the ED and being somewhat, you know, sexist or whatever here. But I think it just depends on the patient, you know. If the patient is coming in saying they've been exposed and they like testing and treatment and they are completely asymptomatic, there's no discharge, there's no abdominal tenderness because I'm I'm less, you know, enthused to do a pelvic exam, especially if it's going to slow throughput um, to the ER. Not because I don't care, but how is it going to clinically change my course? If Because what do we really care about here? I'm worried not just about urethritis. I'm worried about, does this person have PID and not just some sort of urethritis from gonorrhea and chlamydia here? Well, PID feels different than just a little bit of burning when I pee. And so I think that's one of those where you're going to have to do a good clinical exam. Think about, hey, what are the odds that my pelvic exam will really change what I do for this patient. And if it's not going to change what I do, can I just discharge this patient from the waiting room? Or do they have to wait three hours in a COVID-filled waiting room just to do a pelvic that maybe doesn't, uh, you know, change anything based on our clinical, like, pre-test probability, if you want to sure. call it that, based on your quick exam. Well, so, you know, I, I think you take it patient by patient. Uh, yeah, I agree. Patient by patient is fine. I, I definitely am old school physical exam for everything that I do. The physical exam answers about 95% of my questions. Uh, you know, I, I got to say that uh, being female myself, it's not a pleasant exam. However, I think it's necessary. You get to spend some time, extra time with the patient. Maybe they'll give you some information that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. You know, if you're triaging that person in there with five other people in the room, I think we forget about that. So yes, there are some pros, there are some cons, but I think it's all going to be left up to how you like to independently practice. Um, For sure. You know, but again, moving on to our next segment, I'd like to call this segment and I'm hoping to make it a reoccurrent segment, not just because this topic is about recurrent UTI, but essentially this segment, (laughs) this segment is you're going to see this, right? Like there's no way that you're going to go to a shift 
If you're working three shifts this week, you're going to see a UTI. Whether it's recurrent or not, you're going to see one. So 60% of all women will get a UTI. And up to 50% of them are going to get one again. And this is a billion-dollar offender in healthcare. So essentially, UTI is a celebrity in our world. So that means we really got to bring some attention to it. So we actually took a look at a very specific uh, paper of information from the American Urology Association. And this is a very long paper that we're going to put in the show notes that talks a little bit, actually, a lot about recurrent UTI. And in this particular paper, they talk specifically about uh, what a UTI is to them. Like, what does that mean, right? So a UTI is proven by a culture and by symptoms, right? So you got positive culture, positive symptoms. They excluded all these other patients that didn't have symptoms. Um, and also recurrent means they have two episodes in a six month period. So separate infections where they had resolution in between, or they've had three episodes in one year with again, separate infections that have had resolution in between. And what they looked at here are some of the things that they're recommending for us to do for recurrent UTI and to not do. And I have, I picked out about eight of them, Mike, but, okay. um, you know, I want to see what you think about the first couple of them. Uh, right. and you know, whether you agree or not, I guess, uh, you certainly again can do your own practice, but the very first thing that they, they recommend for a patient that you either have proven to have a UTI or suspected recurrent UTI is to do a pelvic exam. That's their number one thing. And the reason why they say that is because they want you to look for things like bladder prolapse. They want you to look for other abnormalities, vaginal abnormalities, cysts, vaginitis, other things that might be concerning, like why is this patient getting another UTI? What the heck is going on? So in this case, would you agree with that recommendation? So I want to kind of... Zoom in on exactly who they're recommending that for. Everybody, so, like you. Well, I, I don't, I didn't interpret it that way. No. So you know, it, yeah. So the, the the clinical policy by by AUA CUA and probably my favorite uh, acronym for an organization, SUFU, Sufu, the Society of Urodynamics, Female Pelvic Medicine, and Urogenital Reconstruction. I know you get their journal, um, but SUFU is also on this, and what they're saying is that. You know, in the person who has recurrent, uncomplicated urinary tract infection. So before I get into my answer on pelvic exams, and I promise I have no problem. You're hedging like a good radiologist would do. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just, I think when we do these things, and we're going to get there, by the way, for the Tylenol and Motrin talk later on today, I think it's important that we understand the scope of some of these recommendations, right? So the scope of these recommendations are not for every single person who walks in with a UTI into your urgent care clinic or into your ER, you know, like, but, but you know, I think it, one thing you have to do before you diagnose them with a recurrent uncomplicated UTI is just ask the question, because I'll be honest, I don't ask the question. How many UTIs have you had in the past year? I don't usually ask that question. Why not? I just I, well, because I don't even think about it honestly, and that, that's my fault. You know, honestly, I see Shame. someone with a cystitis. Well, yeah, and it is. I'll own that. But if someone has a cystitis and they have excellent vital signs and they don't have any signs of a pilo, I think this is a patient at a room that I can turn over very quickly. And I'm helping somebody who truly has a problem I can solve here today. That's why I got into emergency medicine, right, is I can yeah. fix someone's problem today. You know, so sorry to hedge, but th- this guideline is for people with recurrent uncomplicated UTIs. So these are non-pregnant patients with what looks like cystitis, not pilo. So these are patients who don't have fever, chills, uh, CVA tenderness, uh, vomiting here. We're thinking it's all a, a urinary tract infection. And by the way, these are women as well, because in their definition, men with UTIs are by definition complicated. Yeah. Okay. So you asked about, do I do a pelvic exam? In someone who has true recurrent UTIs, then yes, my practice is going to be do a pelvic exam. Because I think, haven't you heard this? Someone comes in, they say they've got a UTI. And you're like, well, why do you think that? And they give some kind of vague, like, well, I think I'm peeing a little more, but like, I just, I know my body and I know I have a UTI and you do their urinalysis and there's like no nitrites, no lukes, nothing. And you're just like, 
uh, you know, like, but the patient is so insistent, right? I know my body. And so, like, you're kind of stuck in this, this hard place. So, in this patient who has recurrent urinary tract infections, and, again, the, the, the criteria here are people who have multiple culture-positive mm-hmm. UTIs. How many folks are we going to have that information for here in the ER and urgent care setting? I think few. But if, if the story sounds about right, Yes, I'm going to do a pelvic exam these patients because what if it's not a UTI? What if it's some sort of, you know, you know, vaginitis, some sort of STD, some sort of prolapse? I've seen some pretty vicious prolapses out there. Uh, and so, like, all these things are ways you can kind of yeah. help this patient. Sometimes you don't help the patient, but you direct them where to get that help. Right. Hey, you've got to go see an OBGYN because you have this thing going on here. It's not just a bladder issue. Well, you know, sometimes it's a whole head of garlic that they shoved up there. You know, that's... That, oh, that's I'd prefer that to some of the stuff that I've seen sometimes, <laughs> but yeah, for sure. I could go on and on of the things that I found, but I digress. So some of the other pelvic exams, yes, okay. Pelvic, shorting pelvic exams, yes. Yes, and you know we just, we'll edit out the past five minutes of me yammering here. Pelvic <laughs> exam, yes, for a true recurrent UTI patient. So the other thing that they, uh, you know, kind of allude to that doing a bladder scan to look for incomplete emptying with a bedside ultrasound. I that's a fabulous thing to do. Ever since I got my uh, handheld ultrasound, which I use all the time. I am constantly doing bladder scans. I think it's just fabulous for all kinds of problems, not just cystitis. You can use bedside ultrasound, you know, for uh, injections. You can use bedside ultrasound to do a bedside echo. I mean, this thing should be kept in your pocket at all times. If it were up to me, everyone would have one. They're expensive, um, and you have to pay for the storage. You know, you have to worry about HIPAA compliance stuff. But just a side note, if you are interested in sort of upping your practice, we do offer a course for ultrasound. So, you know, just throwing that plug in there that if anybody wants to learn more, you know, the uh, the AUA is saying do a bladder scan. Of course, you can use the old thing. kind of looks like a like a bowling ball, but like smaller. And then you rub it on there and it goes tick, 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 tick. You know the thing I'm talking about? You have one of those? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have it right here next yeah, to me. Yeah, right? Uh, <laughs> Yeah. All right. So they also say you absolutely have to have a positive culture to treat. And if it's contaminated, then you got to repeat it. How many of these patients are we calling back and saying, oh, and actually getting on the phone and being able to say, oh, you know, we need you to get a repeat urine. They're like, I'm feeling better now. I don't need to do that, you know. So uh, that's that's a tough one if you're not doing callbacks. I, I think that's what I take from that is that, you know, I, I think – a lot of the emergency medicine literature out there is shying away from doing cultures and especially in our urgent cares, you know, like not a huge thing about cultures, urgent cares, you treat and you street and, and because what's going to happen, you're going to order a culture and somebody else the next day or three days from now is going to see that patient, you know, much like in the ER. So what I take from that is you should order a culture in some of these people who you wouldn't normally order a culture on if it looks like these are going to be recurrent UTI patients, someone who says, uh, first of all, you asked the question, yeah. right? You did, you did better than me and you asked the question, how many of these do you get? Oh, I happen to have gotten two of these in the past year. Oh, hey, you're, maybe you're meeting the criteria here. I'm going to order a culture in a, a, a young lady who has no medical issues who maybe I wouldn't have ordered a culture yeah. on um, in, you know, if I wasn't thinking ahead. Yeah. So, you know, they go on to list a whole lot of these, and we're going to post this for you. You know, this, they looked at, let me just give you the statistics here. They looked at 6,153 potentially relevant articles during this meta-analysis from, let me give you the year, 1946 to now. But they ended up by at looking at just 65 studies, and they actually included some last-minute ones that were just published. So they, they use a research librarian to do all this, which I used to be, a specific medical one. And so I think this is a good, good thing to look at. Um, look at some of these other recommendations. I'm just going to uh, uh, sound them out just for time purposes, basically, you know, saying things like you need to start treatment while they're waiting for the culture. Uh, you don't want to treat asymptomatic patients. Their drug of choice is macrobid, bactrim, phosphomycin, or, you know, you look at your local antibiogram, and that's all grade B evidence there. So the one other thing that they looked at here, which I think is interesting, is, uh, well, actually, two things here. Lactobacillus, right? So are we Probiotics. Yeah. So are we going to do that? 
And the AUA is saying we cannot recommend that with confidence. Right? So Yeah, I think there's a, there's a couple of things out there that are like lactobacillus, D-mannose, which was something that my father actually, he, he was a prosthetist. He made artificial arms and legs, but he'd see folks who had, you know, diabetes and get all these infections. And he used to, he somehow picked up this, you know, pearl of D-mannose. And I think, you know, these things have promise, but they ultimately need more studies done before they're ready for full prime time and, and giving full the weight of, uh, you know, AUA, COA, and SUFU behind them. Yeah. And then another thing they sort of talked about was this increased H2O intake, right? So, uh, you know, we think increased fluid intake, fewer UTIs. They looked at patients that had greater than 1.5 liters a day. And some studies show that there was no benefit. So I still say drink water because it's good for you. Um, I don't think it hurts to do the cranberry juice. That's grade C. Uh, It tastes good, you know, unless you get the Actually, to be honest with you, if you're going to do the cranberry, you should get the one that tastes bad because that's like legit cranberry, but it's $8.99 a bottle. <laughs> right. Yeah, I uh, I think that's interesting, the, the water intake. I would always roll my eyes internally by people who say, oh, I probably got a UTI because I don't drink enough water. You know, but yeah, it talked about how people who drink a liter and a half a day, so that's like, you know, a 500cc bottle with every meal. That's not ridiculous, frankly. You know, they're talking about how one study suggested they had a less than 10% chance of having three UTI episodes in a, in a year, which is your definition of recurrent UTIs, versus an 88% chance of having three recurrent uh, three UTIs in one year. 10% less than 10 versus 88. So that's that's somewhat compelling for me. Uh, and then uh, some of the things I wanted to highlight here too, you know, you mentioned at the start of this thing, we wanted to go about changing practice here, talking about how to just get the urine sample, okay? Labial spreading. Not something I talk about my patients all the time, but that's something that's mentioned here is that, you know, it's not just wiping, you know, the urethra, uh, meatus with your wipe here, but actually talking about so, spreading the labia. You know, I laugh only because we had talked about this earlier, and we wondered, what did we say uh, when you're down in the uh, southern hemisphere that you have to... Well, yeah, exactly, yeah. I'm I, sorry, I I'm retelling wiping... the joke terribly. No, no, it's okay. It's like, you know, another thing, there's some great myths that are busted here in the study, and I think people should read it, you know. So they talk about how wiping... Back to front. I used to tell my patients all the time, you got to wipe front to back. You must do that. And and AUA and, and the rest here said it doesn't matter. You can wipe back to front, front to back, side to side, in a big circle. Just not like, head to toe. Matter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so wiping doesn't right. matter as much. What does matter when getting, uh, you know, doing things, getting a urine sample, spreading the labia, getting a midstream cath, maybe putting these instructions in your um, bathrooms. That can yeah. reduce contamination rates by as much as half. If I could do something to cut the you know amount of contaminated urine specimens in half in my ER, I'd want to do that thing because I'm so yeah. tired of giving epithelial-laden you know, urinalyses. I got to tell you, though, sometimes signs and, and instructions don't work. How many times have I given people the, the cup and there's that little gray thing that says, don't stick your finger in the sharp thing. And I co- they come out of the bathroom, the sticker's gone, their finger's bleeding, and they're like, I touched in there. I'm like, oh. It says, like, big red arrow, no, cross that out. Anyway, oh, one last thing before we move on to the next topic is that the AUA does address a little bit about antibiotic prophylaxis. So this patient that, I had a patient uh, recently that came in and said, hey, you know, I'm going for a big weekend uh, with my boyfriend. It is going to be epic, right? And she wants you to give her some prophylaxis because she's like, I always end up getting a UTI after my wild excursions in Las Vegas. And I, you know, I say to her, okay, well, you know, what have you had before? You know, have you seen a doctor for this? But the AUA does comment that you can do a a prophylactic uh, Bactrim, um, even uh, they have a whole list of different medications that you can use as a single dose before or immediately after sexual intercourse. And that can help prevent a recurrent UTI. So that is something that you shouldn't be afraid to give to someone. Give them three doses. Who cares? You know, um, as long as they have some kind of follow-up or at least they've done it before and understand. Uh, so that's something else I wanted to recommend. Just easy stuff that you can do as a provider um, to help somebody. And I know that yeah. you're more of the minimalist here, but look, I, I can't stop these patients from coming to the ER. So why would I not just help them? Right? 
No, in this case, actually, I definitely would do this, too, if I knew that, okay, just like Diflucan, right? You know, giving Diflucan for right. people who say, like, oh, I always get a yeast infection when I get, you know, uh, antibiotics. I'm like, here's a couple of doses. They're there if you need them, you know? So, yeah. no, in these situations here, I am uh, going uh, above and beyond for my patients. I'm just going to read out these recommendations for post, uh, you know, coital recurrent UTIs, just so it's on the podcast. Okay. If you don't remember, then, you know, Listeners, go ahead and just check the show notes. We're going to have a lot of them here. So it's single-strength trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. It's double-strength trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. Nitrofurantoin, either the 50 or 100 milligram strength, or cephalexin, 250 milligrams here. So the idea is you're taking this immediately before or immediately after sexual intercourse. Apparently, during is not a good nope. idea. You don't want to like pause and hold on. Let me tell you. I'm my, sure it's so, been yeah, so done. Before, okay. Before or after, guys? Before or after? Okay. And and one last thing before we move on, because I know we're running low on time here. First line therapy for treatment of uncomplicated UTI. I think it's important we spend a little time here. You mentioned macrobit is a big deal. I want to highlight that stable resistance patterns for 50 years for macrobit. And that's for nitrofurantoin. That's huge compared to the ceftriaxone shot that we've seen quadruple in yeah. strength in our in our short careers here as uh, PAs and NPs here. Bactrim, it's still an option. Resistance is increasing. Check your local antibiograms. Right. And lastly, phosphomycin, not one that I've frankly ever prescribed, but I know it's an option here. So currently the resistance is low. It will hit your uh, VRE and ESBL uh, type resistant um, UTIs. It can cost and it can also be hard to find. But just know those are the three things we're looking for. Nitrofurantoin, TMP, SMX, and Fosamycin. We're shying away from the loans, folks. I know it can be an attractive thing to want to treat what looks like a pneumonia and what looks like a UTI. Oh, I'll just give a fluoroquinolone and I'll hit them both. I think you're just you're rolling somebody else's dice there with all the different things we know that can be bad for fluoroquinolones. I'd rather in this situation give them two different antibiotics uh, that I know are associated with less harm for the patient. Because yeah. in the end, it's not me that I'm rolling the dice for. It's the patient. Yeah. I'm not going to let you roll my dice in Vegas either, all right? I am a craps player, and I own those dice. So, If I blow on them first, can I roll them? Absolutely not. No. Okay, that's kind of gross. <laughs> Okay, so let's move on to our next segment here. It's our second to last. And this is about something, again, I'm super passionate about. It's perfecting your procedural skills in the ER. And you're probably thinking, hey, I'm listening to a podcast or maybe you're watching the video broadcast of this. And you're like, how am I going to learn about a procedure? I need to see one, do one, teach one kind of deal. Well, so you can still do that. But we have made it super easy for you. Because not only do we have hundreds of previous old columns from the procedural pause and lots of teaching videos for you, but we have created a site for you to be able to just go and see this exact case that I'm talking about right now. So in the liner notes, we're going to give you some information about how to do that. It's simply just www.theproceduralist.org, and you can go there and see this whole case. So this particular case is about a 30-year-old male that came in because he hit his knee on a box and had a big metal pointy rod. I mean, he's telling me the story. He was moving boxes and the rod poked him in the knee. And he got a pretty large gash on his knee. No other trauma. He didn't fall down. Nothing else. Just boop, hit his knee. Bled a lot. So, of course, this patient gets his knee wrapped up, comes into the ER, and he goes, I'm here for knee pain. So he gets put in fast track, which is frequently happens, right? And you don't realize this could actually be a patient that's going to go to the OR, and we're going to tell you why. You do an x-ray, right? You, you unwrap it, you take a look at it, you're like, oh, that's a pretty deep gash. I'm, I'm worried that it goes into the joint space, right? So he goes, he gets an x-ray, and there's some questionable air in the joint space, you know, maybe a tiny amount. Of course, radiologist is hedging there, but you're old school, right? So you want to do what's called a saline load test. And you're concerned, you know, that, that, that the joint space has been disrupted. And Mike, you know, do you want to explain to everyone what the saline load test is before I tell you what we did? Yeah, so you're going to see the acronym SLT when you go to the proceduralist.org. But a saline load test or SLT, it is the most common non-surgical approach and test for a traumatic knee injury involving the joint. 
You use sterile technique, of course, because you're approaching a, a sterile space here to inject saline into the knee or whatever other joint space you're trying to test. You're using an 18 gauge needle and a syringe. You're going to slowly inject that saline into the joint space until you see that capsule distend, stretch a little bit and fluid leaks out of the wound. And if you see fluid leaking out of the wound, that's your positive test. You then want to aspirate that saline out because you don't yeah. want to leave this guy with a or a lady with a, a big honking uh, effusion here. Aspirate that saline out from the knee or joint, whatever, to remove the pressure. And if you have a positive test, that means that patient's you know going to the operating room is going to get a washout and repair. The SLT, when it's positive, proves the joint space has been violated and there is a more serious injury than just kind of a, a injury down to the level of the joint space. Right. And this is a big deal, okay, because patients that, that don't have the joint interrupted or violated in some way, they go home. Okay, they're not using all the hospital resources. They're not seeing an orthopedic. You know, they're not having a bunch of other things done. So this is a big deal, and it's a simple, old school procedures that the orthopedic uh, surgeons still do. Now there is some debate. It's controversial that hey, you know, why don't I just do a CT? And that's a hundred percent sensitive, right? I'm gonna see air. I don't need to do a damn thing. This patient doesn't need a needle. Okay, that's fine. And there are a lot, you know. Actually, the literature shows that about fifty percent um, of clinicians will be ordering the CT. But the orthopedic surgeons will tell you that this is still a very good test. And and although it seems kind of barbaric for the patient, it's super sensitive. And when you look at some of the images and pictures that we have online, I guarantee you. You'll want to try this if you haven't on your next patient when you are concerned about this. Now, of course, consult your orthopedic and, you know, they may say they don't want it. And if there's a significant injury to the knee, like you're worried about additional trauma, tears or um, something worse than just this guy getting poked, then a CT may give you more information. The other disclaimer that I wanted to tell you is that methylene blue, for those of you that have been doing saline load tests, used to be used, right? So that it kind of colors the fluid when it pours out of the cut. You don't want to do that. Now, some people still tinge it a little with methylene blue, but I'm telling you, it's not a good idea. It causes an inflammatory reaction and it can interfere with any later arthroscopic evaluation that the orthopedic surgeons do. So don't do that. Don't piss anybody off. Just, just keep it sailing. Keep it clear. It's easy to do. So check out the video series on that. And Mike, you know, if you just want to run through the the six different pearls here that we want to just remind everybody. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm not afraid of repairing deep lacerations here, but when you have those deep lacerations around anywhere near a joint space, that's very concerning. You really want to look at that wound through the entire range of motion of the joint and look for any violation of the joint. Uh, so that's tip one. Tip two, a little bit of air is not necessarily going to be seen on your plane radiograph. That's why you need something different like an SLT or a CT. Get to know your orthopedic consultants in your emergency department. Those people that are on call all the time, learn their preferences. See if they like the SLT. See if they hate the SLT because guess what? In the end, you kind of have to do what the consultant wants you to do. So if they say, I hate the SLT, always get a CT scan. You're going to have to do it. Yeah, okay? but also, you know, Mike, uh, I hate to, to interrupt you. Sorry, but think, yeah. think about these patients that, let's say, like I, when I was working in a, a rural environment and like I literally had to decide, should I transfer this patient or not? Like maybe I could send them home and they could be seen tomorrow. Okay. But if I did this test, I could easily call the orthopedic and say, yo, I got a positive SLT. You know, the joint space is, uh, is violated. This guy's got to go to the OR. And that's a no brainer. But eh, you know, if I if I didn't have it, maybe I got the CT too. That's certainly a possibility. But these are all just things to keep in mind depending on your practice environment. Sorry to interrupt. No, I think it's very wise. And I think those, if you're in a rural environment, your rural orthopedic doctor will kind of understand that as well. And they'll probably want to hedge uh, towards things that don't involve transport for these patients, especially with how sensitive this SLT is. Speaking of orthopedic surgeons, they, they still do the SLT on joints, you know, uh, especially the knee. But no, it can be done on any joint as long as you have the right approach here. One last bit. 
Remember, it's a sterile procedure. It's going to cause a patient some discomfort. You need an assistant to help you as far as positioning and uh, maintaining your sterile field, and it can be a little messy. So maybe not the best thing to do if you are flying solo or if there's a high volume in ER and, and you can't quite pull somebody away to assist you for a prolonged period of time here. These are all kind of pros and cons on whether you get the SLT or you hit send on the CT scan and you move on to other patients that need to be dispositioned. Yeah, like you're not doing this in the the triage lobby, right? (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Okay, moving on to our last segment. We're going to talk briefly now about the combination drugs, ibuprofen and acetaminophen. And for those of you that were able to catch our faculty forum that had Dr. Sergey Motov talking all things pain, thanks for being there. But if you missed it, you certainly can catch it on our YouTube site. Sergey is pretty much the the king of pain. Uh, Can we call him the king of pain? I think I don't think he'd like it because he's so like humble and unassuming. You know? Yeah, he's he's a super modest guy. He's I've known Sergey a long time. He's he's a wonderful friend and he's a fantastic physician. He knows a lot about pain and he very kindly has supplied a handout that addresses each category of pain medication, which we're going to include in the liner notes. You've got to have it in your work bag. It's fantastic. And he also just recently came out um, as the associate editor for the pain management guide, which we are going to give away at the end of the show. Uh, it's it's fantastic. It's, it's just... I pulled it out today on my shift. It, I used it today. It's a great yeah. little pocket guide. Um, so Sergey always likes to remind everybody that the pain ceiling for ibuprofen is 400 milligrams. Okay. I'm not going to go into all the literature that's that's supporting this, but that is the pain ceiling. Unless, of course, you're a bigger patient, and certainly then we can up the dose to 600. If you're worried about significant inflammatory processes, then yes, absolutely, you can move to a higher dose. However, pain ceiling for ibuprofen is 400 milligrams. Hard stop, okay? And he also is a big component of suggesting that we give 10 milligrams of IM Toradol, if that's what we're giving, Um excuse me, IV Toradol, if that's what we're giving. And we don't need these massive doses. So uh, we need to look at the medications that we're giving and the doses of what we're giving and realizing, hey, you know, maybe we're not saying we're overdosing, but it's just unnecessary medication. And when we give unnecessary medication, we can have unnecessary consequences. And the reason why I wanted to bring up the combination drug, not because I give a crap about Glasgow uh, SmithKline, but because they released this drug and it's a bit confusing for people. Um, it's a combo drug. It's it's a moneymaker. Uh, 72 pills is $12.99 at CVS, right? I can go to Costco and get two big bottles or Sam's Club or whatever for like, you know, $5.99 each of, the, of hundreds of pills. And I like to combine my own medication. That's, that's just me. And I think any time <laughs> that we ask a patient to do math, like we're just setting them up for failure. So, Mike, I just want to talk, have you talk a little bit, actually, about the Advil dual action. Like, how much are they uh, as far as dosage? And what are they saying, basically? What are they concluding about this pill? Yeah, I think Glasgow Smith Klein gets to charge more because this is a new trademark drug. It's not ibuprofen. It's Advil, dual action. Like, it's this yeah. new thing. Like, oh, they powered up their Advil. No, they just added some Tylenol to it, some acetaminophen. So this tablet contains 125 milligrams of ibuprofen and 250 milligrams of acetaminophen, which are just like weird doses to begin with because like one ibuprofen is usually 200 milligrams, like an over-the-counter ibuprofen. So we're going to use not 100, not 200 milligrams of ibuprofen, but we're going to pick 125 milligrams of ibuprofen. Okay, that's interesting, you know, and Tylenol as well, you know, usually it's 325 or 500. No, we're going to give you 250. Okay, interesting. They suggest using one or two tablets for pain. I think it's every six hours. Is that right? Uh, every six to eight hours, they're claiming that six to that, eight. Okay. Yeah, they also claim that you know it controls pain for up to eight hours. So that's something else we're going to mm. talk about. I mean, those are doses I'd give my kids. You know, the small doses of these medications. But yeah, they're saying the the combination of these two drugs at these lower doses causes excellent pain relief. And they say, look, 
choose this drug. Pay GlasgowSmithKline this money for this drug because you'll get the same pain relief with less drug, okay? They say, they even make a big deal. Hey, you're using 37.5% less ibuprofen, 62.5% less acetaminophen. Of course, that kind of is going to vary depending on if you take one or two or like some of our patients, five or six, but yeah. they really want to like own this dosing schedule here. And they've got some nice graphs on their website here. Um, they've got a study they cite about uh, Dr. Earl et al. from the Clinical Journal of Pain. And they talk about how, you know, the efficacy and safety of single and multiple doses of a fixed dose combination of ibuprofen and acetaminophen in the treatment of post-surgical dental pain. So that's interesting, right? This this article is about post-surgical dental pain. That's a very specific indication here. And I wonder if GSK is kind of taking this one indication and blowing it up to say, hey, everybody can use this for all painful issues and you'll get great pain relief. And I think it's really important to understand, just like with that recurrent UTI guideline from AUA, CUA, and SUFU. I just wanted to say SUFU one more time. Um, you know, I think it's important to understand what are they talking about as far as recurrent UTIs in women. In this case, that study was about post-surgical dental pain. Okay, just wanted to highlight that. Their conclusion was this ibuprofen-acetaminophen combo of 250 and 500 milligrams of ibuprofen and acetaminophen specifically provides superior analgesic efficacy to either 250 milligrams ibuprofen by itself or 650 milligrams of acetaminophen by itself and has a rapid onset of action. Eight hours of pain relief duration is well tolerated and is a good option for acute pain. That's the conclusion of GSK. Right. Well, they're citing this study, you know, and I, I read the study, um, you know, it's one study, okay? Uh, the, there was something interesting that I wanted to support this with. That, number one, if you look at, well, a couple of things. If you look at Sergey's manual here, he's still um, suggesting that, you know, for the if you're going to use acetaminophen for pain, 1,000 milligrams is the accepted dose. Um, now... Have I personally found pain relief for myself and for patients with just 500 milligrams of acetaminophen alone? I actually have. I know people that have pain relief from just 500 milligrams. And there's something to be said about that. But there is still no significant study that shows 500 milligrams alone is good enough to treat pain. They're using 1,000, uh, 650 to 1,000 milligrams, typically 1,000. But what I wanted to bring to light is this interesting uh study about the pharmacokinetic excuse me the pharmacokinetic i always say the word incorrectly profile of novel fixed dose combo tablets of ibuprofen and acetaminophen 200 and 500 so basically in this study they looked at if the two drugs enhance each other when you take them together and they looked at a bunch of plasma testing and pharmacokinetic parameter studies, they concluded that ibuprofen and acetaminophen drugs do not significantly alter the pharmacokinetic, pharmacokinetic, such a tongue twister, you know? The drug profiles. The drug. Of, uh, either drug. Yo, the drug profiles. All right, so let's say that again. They concluded that putting these two drugs together, it, does, it, it doesn't enhance them in either way, but what it does do is that it allows acetaminophen to be absorbed faster. So I thought that was extremely interesting. So that might suggest that giving acetaminophen with ibuprofen may help combat pain faster. Um, but they also said that you got to take this particular dose three times a day instead of two times a day dosing. I mean, I was a little confused about how much Tylenol or Motrin I should be giving to patients pretty much after all of this. It's like, well, um, they're going to get confused if I'm confused. <laughs> but I think for right now, like uh, my practice right now is, uh, my medics know this, two and two. I'm giving two acetaminophen tablets, 500 milligrams, and two ibuprofen tablets, 200 milligrams here. And, you know, that's, I think, safe in most populations. It's a, you know, lower dose of ibuprofen than the 800 milligram horse pills that we used to throw around like candy in the military here. And I think that I'm still frankly trying to figure out when I should do both 
and when maybe I just get away with one. Like, you know, Sergey on the recent faculty forum said, hey, in certain things, there's not a benefit of doing both acetaminophen and ibuprofen. Thank you, Dr. Motov, for crushing my dreams <laughs> once more here about, you know, some you know paradigms that I held with, with pain management here. But then you've got this uh, study by Earl et al. saying, no, for post-surgical dental pain, you want to give both. So I think like in most things in medicine, it's complicated and we can't use a one-size-fits-all across-the-board approach to pain management. There are certain situations in which, hey, you know, you give both. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe this GSK, Advil do action is an okay thing. But guess what? Couldn't you just give them, like tell them to take two Tylenol and Motrin over the counter? Like just yeah. like, you know, a leave. Like I could prescribe you 500 milligram uh, naproxen, or I could just tell you to take two over-the-counter 220 milligram uh, naproxen, and that's probably just as good. Yeah, well, everybody so, likes a prescription. Uh, you know, you write that naproxen down on a script pad; it changes everything, man. I, it's just like look. Now that is one of the things. Look at the studies. Go no, ahead. No, but look at the studies <laughs> of I am Toradol. People, there are studies that show that if patients got a shot in the ED of Toradol. Okay, versus an oral tablet that they got better pain relief from a shot because it was a shot and it was better. So, and we talk about that at the yeah, course too. Th- this comes down again to, to rolling other people's dice, right? Like we've we if you do this long enough, you see where Toradol can hurt people, and, and you know the other studies also show that I am Toradol, IV Toradol. When you do the blinding and whatever else here, you don't get more pain relief efficacy than just giving them oral ibuprofen, yeah. you know? So I think there are non-pharmacologic ways yeah. that we can sure. address people's pain. Oh, and Sergi, you can use adjuncts. I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you, but I just wanted to bring to attention everybody this one last rapid response report that Sergey sent me. And it's about the dose of acetaminophen for pain or fever and a review of clinical efficacy. And this report is from the Canadian federal government group that Um, the Canadian Agency in Technologies and Health. And it's been around since 1989, and it provides research and analysis to healthcare decision makers. And the report was a literature review. They searched PubMed, Cochrane, CRD databases, and some other Canadian health agencies. And they looked at documents um, between a five-year period, and they came up with the following. The bottom line is that 1,000 milligrams of acetaminophen alone was shown to be more efficacious than 600 to 650 milligrams alone for pain and surgery after dental pain. A lot of these uh, uh, papers and studies about dental pain. So, but if you look at the uh, Glasgow Smith-Klein claims, they're saying that just 500 milligrams of acetaminophen when combined with ibuprofen is effective for pain. So it's just something to think about, you know? It's it's a bit of um, a confusing conundrum. Um, but I think you're right. We should stick with uh, the 1,000 milligram dosing because we have a lot of good literature on that, and it helps pain. Yeah, here's, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see people coming in saying, I took this Advil dual action, and I'm still in pain, and I've been taking one of these every th- you know three times a day. And it's like, yeah, you're, you're shooting BBs at your pain right now. You need to take stronger. So I think it's good that we, people out there know about this drug and, and what it is and to understand that there could be better ways to treat pain that are still over-the-counter, that are still safe, that are still efficacious. All right, so just going to end the podcast with a couple of fun facts and a few disclaimers and some more information and also a contest should you want to win a prize. But I also came across two interesting papers about social pain and acetaminophen. And I'm just going to sum up those papers. You could take a look at them below. Uh, Acetaminophen reduces social pain. And uh, this was a paper that basically said that if I go out and someone bullies me or makes me feel bad about something and I take acetaminophen, I won't feel as bad. That's what they're proposing in this paper. And um, the second study, it's called From Painkiller to Empathy Killer, Acetaminophen Reduces Empathy for Pain. Um, So they're basically suggesting here that acetaminophen has been suggested not only to help with emotional pain, but it can also help with people who are struggling with depression and even anxiety. And just to tell you just a wee bit about it, the first study looked at people taking acetaminophen every day for three weeks, and then they had a placebo group that were taking whatever, 
and they were they forced them all to play this video game. And in the video game, they basically mocked them and made them feel bad. They did an MRI and they looked at neural active neuro neural activity in the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex and then the right anterior insula for all patients. And the MRI showed patients who took acetaminophen had less um, neural activity in these areas of the brain than those who took the placebo. And so essentially they, they got their feelings hurt less. So, I, you know, I, I think that's fascinating uh, study that someone even thought to do that. But the same concept with the second study was basically um, that they were showing that acetaminophen dulls your ability to care about someone else or their pain. Now, the only reason why I think this might be interesting, it's like that patient who is like, you know, their loved one died or they're in the ER with you and you're like, here, take some acetaminophen. It'll make you feel better. You won't care as much. I mean, could this be a temporary uh, uh, grief fix? <laughs> I think Maker's Mark works better for that, actually. <laughs> I just, I got to tell you, you got to read these studies, you know, and, and Ken Milne, speaking of Ken Milne, always reminds me to be skeptical. He wasn't a huge fan of these papers. He said that they had a lot of holes, but you know what? I still think it's an interesting topic and it leads us to want to know more about these drugs and what they do. Ken is an awesome faculty member. Uh, We have him doing a ton of stuff with us, but also Ken has his own page. It's the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. You can, um, you can check it out by uh, checking out our specific page, which is sgem, just S-G-E-M dot C-C-M-E dot org. And that allows you to get C-C, excuse me, to get C-M-E credit for just listening to his podcast where he reviews papers very intellectually, very nerdy. If you really want to break down these papers, um, Ken is the one to listen to. And he's got some really interesting topics uh, coming up. I think his top, one of his topics for January, which I found interesting, was uh, the risk of non-union for non-selective NSAIDs, COX-2 inhibitors, and opioids. Um, I'm interested to see what that paper has to say. Yeah, I think people are so like paranoid sometimes about giving things like ibuprofen or Aleve for fracture pain. Yeah. You know, people are like, oh, well, I heard from an orthopedist one time. Like they told me some, you know, scary story, you know, by a campfire about someone they give ibuprofen to and then their humerus didn't heal or something. You know, I don't think it's born out in the literature. I predict that's what Ken's going to talk about. But I'm curious about that paper when it comes out and, and how Ken breaks it down. Yeah. So here's our contest, our question for the contest and what you're going to do is if you know the answer we want you to email us at uh two view cast at gmail.com remember it's the number two the word view and cast all one put together at gmail.com we'll put it in the liner notes but uh mike you want to read the question yeah, I do. So again, the the gift is the Emra Pain oh, right. Management Guide from Sergey Motov. It's there. It's awesome. I've used it since I got it, and v- multiple times here for multiple uh, you know modalities. So it's a great uh, guide, and you're gonna want this guide here. It, here's the question: You got to get both of them right, and you're gonna mail your answer to twoviewcast at gmail.com. Here it is: What controversial drug was given a black box warning? for prolonging QT and torsades in 2012, but is now being declared by a particular organization to be an effective and safe treatment used for nausea, vomiting, headache, and agitation. Okay, so what is the drug, and who is the organization that is pushing for the return of this drug to the EM scene? So give us your answers at twoviewcast at gmail.com. The number two, viewcast at gmail.com. And that's it. That's the end of our first podcast. I think we did a, a okay job discussing. We maybe went a little longer than we were supposed to, but uh, we if you thought we didn't do an okay job, let us know and we will do better. Um, but uh, as we transition here to the end of the podcast, I just want to remind you that this is uh, our opinion. It doesn't reflect that of our employers. And certainly every clinician is going to treat a patient um, in the way that they feel appropriate. These are just recommendations and we are citing guidelines that you can read yourself. And also, uh, if you're a patient or a person, a regular person, um, I should say regular, but you're all, you're all good people listening to this podcast, talk to your doctor. Don't just listen to us. Go, go, go make sure that they're on the same page with you. 
Or your PA or your NP. Yeah. How about that? Or your PA or your NP, of course. Absolutely. Um, and we are going to hopefully see a lot of you in July. If you want to le- uh, learn more about our courses, our CME courses, you can go to www.ccme.org. And there you can find out more about our home study course, our pharma- pharmacological, you know, me and the pharmacological kinetic words today, pharmacology course, EKG course, the advanced boot camps. A lot of these are home study courses you can do. Or if you want to join us in Las Vegas, the dates are July. We're going to be live. We're going to be live this year. On the stage, hanging out, July 11th to the 16th. And we are offering a ton of stuff. So check out the liner notes, read the articles, see if there's anything else that interests you. And we welcome your feedback. Mike, you want to roll us out? Yeah, so if you think that there's one clinician out there that you work with that could use anything we talked about, share this podcast with them, okay? Hit the share button, send it to them, uh, and let them know you heard it on the two of you. Thanks, Martha. Thanks, everybody. Dave and Ricky on the staff here. Appreciate all your hard work, and we'll see you guys on the next episode. See you guys. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice, and no clinician-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. Thanks, Peter.